Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Bill Taub and Dave Tilly. Hi, this is uh, Dave Tilly with Homeland Heroes Salute, and filling in for Phil Top is our friend Josh McKelvin, a Marine veteran and a uh, previous guest on Homeland Heroes Salute. And we're here today with Lorenzo Intercola, who who has served four years in the United States uh, Navy, and he's served also in uh, law enforcement with, and currently is with the Saugus Police. Uh, department and we're so happy to have have you Lorenzo and and Josh thank you so much for co-hosting uh, my my pleasure my friend uh, big shoes to fill uh, filling in for Phil Todd but uh, I will do my best and it's an honor to be here and Lorenzo thank you for uh, what has clearly been a lifetime of service uh, much appreciated yes thank you very much appreciate it thank you for having me well L- Lorenzo I want to want to start first with uh, a little bit about your early story. Um, tell, tell us about yourself a little bit and what got you interested in serving in the military and especially in the United States Navy. Um, I feel like it all kind of happened by accident. Um, so my going through high school, I didn't really have, I didn't have a plan. I just knew I wanted to be a police officer. I just, I just never knew how I was going to get there. Um, I didn't really put the focus on it as much as I thought. I just thought I would go to um, go to college and just wait till I became of age to take the civil service exam and um, go f- kind of go from there. I didn't really think of any. I don't know the military was never never a thing that um, popped in my mind. Um, my father was a Marine and a state tro- state trooper from Massachusetts, so I kind of. Um, emulated that growing up. Um, it was, I just kind of idolized what he was doing. And um, I just felt like that, that was where I needed to be. So with that in mind, I just, um, I just kept kind of just thinking that I could just, like I said before, go to college and then take the test. And, but as I got older, it didn't really seem that simple. So um, after high school, I went to college for two years, graduated with my associate's degree in criminal justice, and I was 20 years old. And at that point, um, something just clicked and said, join the Navy. And I I went to the recruiter's office and within eight months, I was I was on my way to boot camp. I would imagine, Lorenzo, that uh, given the good natured uh rivalry between the services your dad probably needled you a little bit oh yeah he still he still gives me a hard time about it he makes his comments but uh (laughs) it's it's all in good fun i have a brother who um he was in the air force so we had all the bases covered got it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was that way too my dad being air force and me going army but when when you when you ended up going navy was it um what was your mos was it in the law enforcement direction of the Navy or, or a totally different path at that time? Uh, completely different. Um, so when I was going through MEPS, um, my eyesight wasn't 
um, up to standard to be military police within the Navy. So I kind of got stayed away from that. And I, I could have, I could have got a doctor's, my recruiter said I could have got a doctor's note and all this stuff, but I was just so determined to, to go. And I didn't want to delay it anymore. So the uh, MOS I chose was um, an operations specialist, which is essentially ships navigation through radar. Um, it was extremely boring. Um, and I hated every second of doing that. <laughs> but um, on the other end, I mean, I, it, for some reason, I, was, I excelled in it. And um, mm-hmm. that, that caught my chief's attention. And she ended up putting me up for an early promotion. So by the time I had a year and a half in, I was already in E5. Wow. And what, yeah. and what, what, what years were you in, Lorenzo? I served for, I left for boot camp uh, March 2009, and I got out, I was supposed to get out March 2013, but I got out December 2012 um, due to Navy downsizing. Sure. So you're right there in the thick of it, the war on terror. Where, where were your uh, duty stations? Um, so out of boot camp uh, in A school, I got stationed in, I got attached to a pre-com unit. Um, and the ship was the USS Gravely. So it was home ported in North, Norfolk, Virginia, but it was being, um, outfitted in Pasadena, Mississippi. So I bounced back and forth between those two places, um, from like late 09 to the beginning of 2011. And that was when I, um, I took an, at the time, the Navy had a program called IA, which I'm not sure if they still have it, but it was called um, Individual Augmentee. And it was when they took Navy sailors and um, put them in one unit to go help the Army with whatever they had going on. So I, <clears throat> I took a billet for that, and I went to Guantanamo Bay um, all of 2011 um, into 2012, I was a prison guard down there for the entire year. Came home in, uh, I think, February, March, 2012. Um, and then I was, I was basically, I was just on shore duty for the, the rest of my contract, just kind of um, hanging out. Um, my, I was already too delayed um, with what the ship had going on. And my chief didn't want to keep me up to speed and they were, cause, cause they had workups and they were going out to sea often. <clears throat> so I just kind of hung back and, and did, did cleanup work around base. Um, I, th- I thought it was great. I had a regular seven to three job. Wow. Share, share a little more about, uh, that's your, your um, time at Guantanamo. <clears throat> yeah. Um, what do you want to know um, in specifics? I mean, it was deployment wise, it was. Or, or what you could share. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah. When it comes to Gitmo, that's a great question, actually, Dave. Yeah. You know, when it comes to Gitmo, there's a perception. I mean, people have seen, you know, a few good men. Right. Uh, we've seen on the news, but uh, uh, it kind of should give us what the daily life is like uh, being on a base in Cuba. Um, for for a, for a detainee or for a sailor? Well, sure. I mean, as much as you can speak to the life of a detainee. Um, for, yeah, for what I've seen of them, I mean, they they have it made. Um, 
with not trying to get political, but when I was there, um, Obama was in office. Um, so you can imagine the shift from Bush um, to Obama, what was going on down there. So by the time I got down there, the stories that were um, that came out from from Guantanamo were were pretty much non-existent by the time Obama was in office because um, he, he he I mean he essentially catered to them. They got whatever they wanted. They had they three full meals a day. They had TVs. They had CD players. They any any kind of electronics. They yeah they were they were well taken care of. Um, and I think that's what got so difficult being down there. Um, just because it your the way the camps work, it's kind of set up like an octagon, and all the um, all the blocks build off each other um, at like at each corner. So, and you walk in from, I get it would I guess it would be the back of their their rec area, and you're just in this confined box for a twelve hour shift, just staring at them the entire time and they get all these things. Yeah. We get to go home, but it just, at the same time, these are high risk terrorists and Mm -hmm. it's just, I don't know. It makes you, everything just seemed unfair at that time. So that was a little bit of a, um, a struggle that I had to deal with. I mean, I was young. Um, it was just a lot to take on. Um, I, cause I was in, I was in eighth, eighth grade, when nine uh, eleven happened, and mm. I re- I remember just on the news, just hearing about certain guys who were getting um, who were getting caught and captured and brought to Guantanamo, and then it was just kind of a, a surreal moment um, being there and face to face with everyone that um, I was on- so much destruction on the world. Yeah, it's almost like. In, in a sick way, it's like it was kind of like being starstruck. No, no I understand. It, 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 uh, maybe starstruck isn't the accurate, uh, <laughs> but you're you, yeah, it's a surreal experience for sure. Knowing that this is the face of the war on terror to right. a large degree, um, and 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 you're seeing without uh, you know naming names or confidentiality, you're seeing probably some. Pretty bad dude. Key, key, key yeah. folks, some key. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of anything that you can think of that was catastrophic in the war on terror, those guys were down there. How, how did they, I'm curious, how, how did they respond to the American servicemen? Were, were they defiant? Were they polite? Was it different depending on the personality? I mean, um, how was their demeanor and behavior? Yeah, they were, they were all different. Some were very friendly, um, had no issues with, and then some wanted to make your life a living hell. So there was, it was just really a far stretch of, um, mm. of people down there. Um, it's quite an experience, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, for you, what, the, what was the daily life at Gitmo? I mean, aside from the runs and John Nicholson, you know, talking about <laughs> 4,000 you know, guys who've <laughs> trained to kill me before breakfast or whatever he said. Um, uh, what, what was it like? I mean, was it, uh, it uh, certainly a, a, not your normal uh, tour of duty, I wouldn't think. 
Right. Yeah. No, it was, I mean, I remember when I came back from deployment, my chief was giving me a hard time because I was, um, I was more in shape than I was when I left. And I had like a, a very dark tan and I grew my hair out and she, she got a kick out of it. <clears throat> but yeah, that I means like life, life outside of, of work being down there. Um, we were very well taken care of. Um, they had, there were just, there were restaurants, there were, there was bars. Um, I, I didn't, I kind of stayed away from alcohol during that deployment. Cause I, I don't know, I was young. Um, I just, I just didn't want to get myself into any trouble. So, uh, but there was plenty of alcohol on, on base. Um, yeah, there were a lot of issues with that just cause you know how you military guys. Sure, yeah. Young military. Yeah, yeah, right. A lot of them, it's their first time away from home and <laughs> right. yeah. But they, they, had a, they had a movie theater on base. Um, they had like a, a little water park. Um, they had a, they had maybe three or four gyms. It, it, was, it was, it was nice. Yeah. So like on days off, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like I was sitting in my, in my room all day. Um, and the living, the living quarters were, um, they were very nice too. They were, they were like townhouses. Sure. And, and beautiful climate, but probably where you've, felt very isolated um or, or not so much was not, the no, community not really. um it was yeah it was i never felt any kind of detachment being down there um mm -hmm. it yeah i just i felt like i was just away at work um even even where so the 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 naval base and the camps were a kind of there's a i, I don't know maybe five to 10 mile road um, that separates them. So we would have to take a bus to the camp every day, but even like, even where the camp was located, it's still on the shore. So when, even at moments when, when I had to stand watching um, like the guard towers, there's still a beautiful view for me to look off into. Yeah. Well, well, well it was an important job you did. And certainly, uh, uh, I mean, I know you didn't want to go into politics, and that's not the motivation for it. But there's, you know, a lot of people who look at Gitmo with uh, varying degrees of uh, opinions. No question about it. But the job had to be done, and you did that. And that's certainly appreciated. Yeah, thank you. So, so talk about um, God, your your experiences post Gitmo. What what was uh, next in your career? Um, so after that, like I said, um, my, my number one goal was to become a police officer. That was all, that was all I ever wanted to do. Once I, once I was of age to understand what my dad was doing, um, and ironically enough, which I'll get, I'll get into later. Um, we, me and my dad just don't see eye to eye anymore where I, I just kind of, wash my hands with, um, with, with how, with, with, with how I was raised just because, um, just, there was a lot of stuff that I kind of never picked up on as a kid, um, that reflected, um, how I was going forward and how I approached everything. So coming out of the Navy, um, I had already, taking the civil service exam. I was able to take it while I was um, on deployment. 
Um, so the results came out uh, mid to late 2012. And I got, um, I think what I scored, it was in the high 90s, um, which, which isn't really that competitive um, if you're familiar with the civil service exam. Um, I think it was like a 95 or a 96. But luckily I had a, my um, veteran's preference um, to put me at the top of the list. So um, six months out of, six months after, no, nine months after um, getting out of the Navy, I was in the police academy. So it was a pretty quick transition. Well, that's tremendous. And what was that experience like going into the police academy from the military? Um, pretty, pretty much what I, what I expected, um, as far as like military <clears throat> bearing and stuff like that goes. Um, so a lot of some similarities with the discipline and with the, uh, training. Right. right. Which, which I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm very into that. Um, I just, that was, I, I don't know. That was like my, like uniform and military bearing. That was always like one thing I always just kind of held on a pedestal. So going into the police Academy and it having that same kind of atmosphere was, um, was kind of, was comforting. Mm -hmm. Um, but shockingly, I thought that the, the police department would be like that. And I learned very quickly that the police department I, I work for, um, I could say that they, don't follow any, any, any kind of military bearing at all. So that kind of threw me for a little, uh, little loop. Yeah. So going through the training felt. Yeah. Similar, felt similar, similar and disciplined, but once you were out into the profession, it was very diff different. Yeah. Extremely different. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't. Yeah. Right away. It just wasn't what I was, um, expecting it all i just my whole um character and demeanor kind of changed just be, because of that job and in what what i saw my colleagues and supervisors doing it just it was either become part of the in crowd or, or stay on the outside and i kind of let myself spiral with um with doing that and it just it kind of I don't know, in a way made me feel like I devalued who I really was. And it took me a little bit to um, straighten myself back out. Well, that must have been tough because, you know, you were mentioning before when you joined the service, your uh, real interest was more law enforcement. Yeah. And then, but, uh, but the service had uh, more of kind of the... Uh, structure and discipline that the law enforcement didn't end up having. Right. Was, was that kind of, um, that must've been tough going through that one. I mean, your ultimate, uh, interest and goal was in the law enforcement. end. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, it, it took me a second to kind of, for everything to click in. So when I, I was 25, 20, I think yeah, I was 25, 26 when I first started working out of the academy. And um, so I, 
I became friends with everyone at work. There were, I didn't have any issues with anybody. I went out drinking with everybody. Um, yeah, just, and then at, like the more often I started ha hanging around everyone at work and meeting police officers from other departments, I started seeing that they all, they all hold themselves above everybody else, like as if they can do no wrong. Um, and I started questioning that because it, it didn't make sense to me. It's just, I don't believe that. I just think that the laws, police officers should abide by the laws too. And so when I, when I, when I saw coworkers doing things and getting away with it, I started pressing the limit with, um, going against departmental policy, uh, for example, with um, getting, getting more and more tattoos, tattoos in areas that, that were prohibited um, by their standard, um, growing facial hair, <clears throat> stuff like that, and, and getting reprimanded for it. And it, and, it, and it just left a sour taste in my mouth because guys at work would be, at, would be doing actual unlawful things in the the staff the chief just turned their heads the other way so it 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 took me a second to for that to click in probably about so you just in, in the interest of fairness and making sure that uh, you know we don't impugn anyone that doesn't uh, deserve that, we certainly understand that the people, many people in the department, is an age-old story. Um, you know, kind of have a uh, a god complex above the law, as you said, uh, and that troubled you. So you found a, a way to kind of protest that uh, without going through normal channels. You know, as you said, by uh, getting the tattoos and, and things along those lines, and that must have been challenging for you uh, on a day to day basis, seeing the things that bothered you and not being able to to uh, point them out, you know, in a black and white kind of way and trying to get the message across to them. But one thing that struck me about you, Lorenzo, that I find uh, extremely admirable and courageous is your service isn't done. And what I mean by that is uh, you've been really uh, focused on, on trying to shed light on an epidemic that has been a problem in New Hampshire and in this country for well, for far too long, and has been in the shadows, uh, and that's the, the crisis of mental health. Why is this such an important issue for you, and how has your personal experience kind of brought you to where you are today as far as making this a motivation for you? Um, so um, I've always been a huge advocate in mental health. Um, it's just something that's always been intriguing to me, um, just even as a young kid, but I just never really – um, dove into it. Um, like I said, just, I had the, the police thing on my mind, um, for a while. Um, sure. and actually at one point I was, uh, 2017, I was in grad school, um, studying to be a mental health counselor. So I was already on my, my way to an exit with the police department. So back in October of 2016, I responded to a call at work. Um, where um, an eight-year-old boy was hit by a car and um, simultaneously he got caught underneath it and was dragged. Um, yeah, so it, it, 
I was the first one there. Um, went through the call, did everything. It just, it, it didn't sit well with me. Um, That's a shock to the system and the trauma that you experienced through that certainly is something that doesn't go in a way in a day, no question. Yeah, so when I, I, I was out of work for about a month after that, just, um, I went to the VA, I was talking to someone there, just, just trying to just process it basically. So I went back to work after a month and then from, from that point on, I just, I hated being at work. I, my, my attitude became very, very poor. Um, I just, I just didn't care. Um, I, did you recognize it, at the time that this was symptomatic of what you'd experienced or did no, you not, not at all, not at all. No, I was just, I thought this is me. Like I right. just, I had a very careless negative attitude and I, I just, I carry that weight around and, um, it just kept building and building and building and, um, yeah. And as that kept going on, I, I, I became more and more isolated from everybody at work. Um, I was a big guy who, who was, I worked a lot of overtime and details. I stopped picking up shifts and, um, yeah, it's just, I, I, I never caught on to it. And, um, March, 2019, um, was when I, I hit my breaking point. Tell us about that day. Everybody has kind of a date when it has one of these seminal moments in their life. Um, same directions. So leading up to that day, um, I had been dating a girl for three months at the time. Um, and she's now my wife, which I, I wouldn't be here without her. She's, mm -hmm. It absolutely you um so i met her in december of 2018 um and at that point i noticed anger and aggression really really starting to come out um just in an ugly rage and, and not that she was causing anything there was nothing nothing at all that she was doing it was just i just i don't know kept pushing everything down and it was, it just kept piling up and all these feelings. And, um, so three months into a relationship, um, we're out one night, um, having dinner and drinks, have a few more drinks after dinner, make our way home. It's around midnight. This is into March 15th. Now, um, looking back to something I asked you, were you, uh, when it came to drinking, was that kind of self-medicating? To, yeah, to um, I was I was so stubborn. Um, I never, I never wanted to be medicated because I had sure. this attitude where no, I don't need that. I can just drink. Very, very, very poor way, and and nobody was going to tell me different. Like if that was sure. my mind was made up. Um. So, yeah, we're, we're having one more drink before we we go up to bed and we're sitting there talking in the kitchen and I just, I don't know what was said. I can't tell you what the conversation was about because I can't remember. Next thing I know, I'm just, I'm in a full blown episode, just screaming, crying, um, attacking her. Um, yeah. Then it just, 
it just kind of escalated throughout the night um, to the point where um, I, almost, I almost took my own life. And luckily, um, at that point, she she was able to say the right thing at the right time, um, which was remarkable for her. Um, just wow. Yeah, she, she so she she told me she was um she told me she was pregnant and she wasn't, but she knew that that was the only way that I was going to stop. Um, and she was right. Just after that, I just I kind of I just I collapsed and I got admitted to um the hospital. Was there an immediate awakening for you where you recognize you know what I've had an issue that maybe I didn't identify or self-diagnose as a, as a mental health, uh, challenge or issue, or was that sort of like a gradual, uh, awareness that kind of took place? How did that, how did that? So it was a lot of work. Um, I knew I needed help that night. I knew I needed help. I finally, I finally came to terms with, with, with my, within myself that I knew I needed to do something. I was going to lose her and, like I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, even though we, we had been together for three months, I couldn't picture my life without her. So I, I knew I had to get my, my act right. right. And even, even in the beginning of recovery, I was like, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like I, I spent one day in the hospital and I was back. I was, I was quote unquote normal. Um, just, it was a lot of consistent work. I remember it's still, um, I was inpatient for about three months and she would come visit. Um, we would have good days and we would have bad days. And just, there was never a single thing that she ever did wrong. It was just me ha- having to work out my own issues um, and not be as angry and just learn. Like, I, it was holding myself accountable, which yeah. was very, very difficult to do and admitting to all my wrongs. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's been almost three and a half years um, since that night. And it's, it's easier to talk about now. Um, and I could, part, there are parts about that entire story that I'm not, I'm not proud of. There's, I mean, I, I put my hands on my wife. It's, that's absolutely disgusting. Um, I, I, in for her to, to bear with me and, and work with me through this entire process, it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just unbelievable. Well, the recognition of that is, is impressive on both your parts, but clearly recognize there was something underlying that led to that because you do recognize that, you know, that's not acceptable behavior and identified what made you act like that. And it's a courageous thing to do. And I'm not blowing smoke in your direction because obviously you had to hit the ground hard uh, to kind of wake up from it. But, you know, to, you know, people can take two paths at that point. They can sink deeper until they do wind up, you know, it ends in tragedy or they can reverse course. And you chose that path, which is often the harder one. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I could have, I was either going to end up dead or in jail. And honestly, those pro, both are probably are easier than, than being in treatment because this it's, it hasn't been an easy road, but it's, I, I, but I swear by it. If you put the work in, things will change. 
Well, and Lorenzo, one of the things too that when um, you know you wanted to and agreed to come on the podcast too, you you wanted to bring awareness to mental health uh, awareness and advocating for. So we thank you for sharing uh, your story and and path of uh, you know going going through these. Uh, challenges and look looking to your uh, future what what do you uh, feel that you've uh, kind of gained in looking at a positive path forward through these challenges um, on just life itself is just is a very beautiful fragile thing in I just, I look forward to that every day, not to, not to sound corny, but it's just being at a point where I was so close to losing it all. Um, it's just, uh, it's just very re rewarding to wake up every day, but, um, I guess in a sense of profession, um, I eventually, like my plan is to, um, what I have a pending case with the Saugus Police Department right now, so I've been out of work, work with them on injury for the past three and a half years since that since that day. Um, and that's just been a nightmare in itself. So in the meantime, I got my I got my barber license during the pandemic, and I also got my certification um, as a peer specialist. And with those, I just I want to be able to work with veterans and first responders as a pair specialist and somehow incorporate haircuts in that as well. And, um, I've already started doing volunteer work, which, um, Judy Way Weymouth put me in, um, in contact with, uh, transitional housing for veterans at Nashua. And I've been, um, I've been cutting hair there every few weeks, which has been awesome. That's fantastic. And that's something that Dave, I mean, Dave Tilly is a rock star when it comes to veteran support, as you probably are aware uh, made it a mission with Veterans First and Harbor Care to end veterans' homelessness. So, and a haircut, boy, you know, I mean, it, it may seem like just a small thing, but for someone that, you know, may, may be looking at themselves in the mirror and seeing all the flaws instead of uh, some of the positives, mm -hmm. uh, a simple haircut from somebody who can, you know, give a little perspective in life, it can make a big difference. And oh, uh, I don't mean to sound pithy, but it can. And it's, so it's awesome. Those those guys at that house, they're they they've lived through it all. They've they're they're yep. in their seventies, eighties, nineties, and just they're just talking to them is just I can learn so much. Um, and they're they they are thrilled to get a haircut. It's <laughs> insane. Like it just it makes me feel good that they they feel so good about themselves. Well, I think it's a win-win situation, and I uh, uh, I admire where you're at and wherever you land. I think it's probably going to be uh, with positive effort and uh, uh, a bright future ahead. I know we're almost out of time, but thank you for sharing your your story. You know, it comes, when it comes to veterans, we're all tough guys, right? Right. Especially cops and things like that. So asking for help, recognizing, looking inward, and seeing that something needs to be fixed, and then admitting it publicly. Boy, you don't get that much. With with the uh, you know with the 
in the veterans community. And that's not to diminish anyone within the community. It's just not how the culture is. Right. It's uh, not, yeah, it's, it's definitely not how um, between first responders and the veterans, it's not how they operate. No, nobody wants to speak up. I, I, I remember this, the sad part about that is I spoke up at, at work and I got basically laughed at. Um, even, even after that incident, I remember talking to my dad and he, he pretty much told me to suck it up. So I don't know if it's a generational thing or, or what, but it's, well, it, it, it needs to end. I suspect this Lorenzo may, I'm sure it didn't feel good that day when you were getting uh, harassed a little bit, but I'm sure that after doing so, a number of guys went home for whatever variety of reasons and trauma they experienced in their life and actually said, maybe I got to think about myself too. So look at it that way. Yeah. Maybe, you know, you help someone at least start to move forward and recognizing some right. of these, because it takes, you know, I, I wish there was a silver bullet when it came to mental health, but, you know, but it's people like you and David and, uh, and shows like this and the willingness to talk about it, the dialogue, matters uh and the more we talk about it the more comfortable we get so uh i'm a fan so thank you very much for your time i really appreciate you telling the story and i'm just a fill-in host but i feel grateful that i was able to do it on this day yeah thank you we can we can be uh, more honored to have you lorenzo and for you for you just opening up and and sharing both uh your service experience and your your law enforcement and and moving moving forward just in a uh, a uh, you know, positive direction and and we we can't thank you enough for uh, you know opening up to us on uh, Homeland Heroes as a fellow veteran and uh, and really appreciate you being with us. Yeah, thank you. This has been yeah, awesome. I, I can't thank you guys enough. Yeah, thank thanks for your service and and thanks for you know joining us and and sharing on Homeland Heroes Salute. Of course. And 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 thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh, for filling in for um, the amazing Phil Tubb, founder of Swim with a Mission, and also uh, thank you for. Uh, Heroes who we represent, who who just does the organization does tremendous work um, helping our veterans uh, most in need in the Granite State. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members veterans and their families in their time of need. And Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.